This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, which is now out in paperback. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. Among activists, journalists, and politicians, the conversation about how to respond to and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results, either alone or in combination. The core of the problem must be addressed, the nature of modern policing itself. This book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to a decrease in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now in paperback from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Neoliberalism. We all hate it, but what does it mean? Most broadly defined, it can simply stand in for capitalism as a whole. More narrowly, it has come to refer to the entirety of the market-dominated politics and culture that supplanted the New Deal order, where privatization globalization, flexibilized labor, and a shrunken social safety state rule the day. My guest today is intellectual historian Quinn Slobodian. In his book, Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, out recently from Harvard University Press, Slobodian tells the story of neoliberalism's Geneva School, including Ludwig von Mises, Frederick Hayek, and William Rupke, and their vision for a new imperial order, establishing rules to protect the market from political interference. It's a movement that begins with nostalgia for the bygone Habsburg Empire, moves on to fights against the decolonized world's efforts to create a new international economic order, and that plays a key role in forming both the European economic community and the WTO. Always, the Geneva School neoliberals were trying to provide a solution to what they saw as the problem of universal suffrage, a solution that would shelter a mythically ordained market from the deepening and expansion of democratic power, whether in the form of labor unions or a decolonized global south. Democratic control of government always posed the threat of extending to the democratic control of the economy, and thus, of course, of its means of production. So what the Geneva School neoliberals sought wasn't classical, liberal laissez-faire, but rather, as Slobodian writes, a proactive project to defend the world economy against the people. 
It has been a project from the beginning deeply tied to patrons in big business, but that also ideologically always surpassed capitalists' proximate interests. And, contrary to conventional wisdom, the Geneva School neoliberals did not fetishize economics, but rather dethroned it in favor of an insistence that the workings of the market could be neither known nor managed. And their vision was not one of a world without borders, but rather a world where bounded nation-states would be disciplined into compliance by a globalized economic order, governed by forces and institutions invisible to ordinary people and superior to them all. As J.W. Mason writes in the Boston Review, the European Union offers the fullest realization of the neoliberal political vision. Europe's incomplete integration— with its confusing mix of powers delegated to Brussels and powers retained by national governments, is often seen as a design flaw. But partial integration is precisely the goal. It means that neither the national nor the international body have the legitimacy and capacity to direct the economy. With no international entanglements, a government is sovereign. With complete integration, sovereignty moves to the higher level. What is wanted is a situation in which some powers but not others are delegated, leaving neither national nor supranational governments able to act outside of circumscribed roles. Mason continues, Elsewhere, the main vehicle for the neoliberal project is international agreements on trade and investment. Slobodian argues that the framers of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and its successor, the World Trade Organization, drew heavily from the self-conscious neoliberals of the Geneva School. For these thinkers, the most important argument for free movement of goods and especially finance was not their direct material benefits, but the limits they imposed on the autonomy of national governments. In short, for neoliberals, the relationship of dependency long decried in the global south was a model for the world. But since the launch of the anti-corporate globalization movement that in the United States erupted in mass protests that shut down the Seattle World Trade Organization meeting in 1999, the people who neoliberals have insisted should be the objects of the global economy have repeatedly insisted that they should be its rulers. The neoliberals' dream of a depoliticized global economy is today no doubt in crisis. But as Trump's brand of nationalism makes very clear, the sort of open politics that will emerge to supplant the neoliberals who can no longer hide behind the curtain are terrifyingly up for grabs. But wait, dear listeners, this podcast exists because listeners like you make contributions to keep it up and running at patreon.com slash the dig. So regular listeners who can afford to do so, please donate now if you have not done so yet. What's more, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. If you contribute $20 or more, we will send you a bunch of left-wing books. So please, take a moment now and give what you can at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and before we get rolling, I have a live event in New York City coming up with Yanis Varoufakis. It's Saturday, December 1st, 6 p.m. at the New School's Arnold Hall in the Teresa Lang Student Center. We'll be talking about challenging new right populism in Europe and the United States. It'll be great, and I'll include a link to more details in the show notes. Okay, here's Quinn Slobodian, who teaches history at Wellesley College. 
Quinn Slobodian, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, it's good to be here. In his review of your book, Adam Tews wrote, quote, Neoliberalism has many histories. Milton Friedman, the Chicago School, Pinochet, Thatcher and Reagan's market revolution, IMF structural adjustment, and shock therapy transition programs for the post-communist states are all fixtures in the narrative of the neoliberal turn. What history of neoliberalism is it that you are telling in Globalists, and how does it relate to these others? I think the story I'm telling that has become probably um, even more unusual recently is to tell the story of people who saw the problem of capitalism not from a national or an imperial perspective or indeed a racial or a gendered perspective, but from the position of the planetary. So looking at global capitalism from a great distance and saying, what institutions does this giant teeming thing need to have locked in to continue to reproduce itself? So the the kind of Theresa May thing of a citizen of the world as a citizen of nowhere is actually in many ways, the subject position that I'm trying to excavate from the point of view of my actors. I want you to explain this idea that's at the core of the Geneva School, which is the proposed division between economic governance and the governance of other matters, what, what they envisioned as a double government. Why did they think that the economy needed to be protected from national governments? And how did they think that that could happen? So in the story I'm telling, the 20th century is really marked by two events in particular. The first is the end of empire, and then associated with that is the generalization of universal suffrage or one person, one vote democracy. And this, in a way, is gets to the core of what is neo about the neoliberals I'm looking at. They're approaching a terrain on which there is this universalization of an assumption that people should have a particular territory inhabited by people that kind of look like them or speak like them, and that that territory should somehow reflect the shared destiny or the shared aspirations of that community of like-minded ethnic or national people. And that principle, that idea of national self-determination, doesn't always but can run directly against the notion of global economic interdependence. So what the neoliberals that I'm looking at in my book saw was that as people were given votes at a kind of a mass level, as they organized into nations, you know, split off from the original large European empires, they started to make decisions that interrupted the free flow of goods, the free flow of capital and the the certainty that capitalists had enjoyed through much of the 19th century that if they owned property in one part of the world that was not their own country, that they could nevertheless rely on its security in the long term or that its security would be guaranteed by home financial institutions, the intervention of gunships and so on. So the, the rise of democracy and the rise of national self-determination in the 20th century produces a whole new set of dilemmas for neoliberals who are trying to imagine uh, an institutional framework that can protect 
global capitalism. And this and notion specifically of, what you call the human right to capital flight. That is uh, one of the things that I discuss in the book, this notion that the freedom of capital to be able to leave when it wants and uh, come when it wants is essential to the reproduction of the system as a whole. And as it turns out, that very right was being infringed on in what we call the Bretton Woods system that was created after the Second World War and lasted until the 1970s. This was a period where, unlike today, capital wasn't actually entirely free to go from country to country. There was a kind of normalization of what are called capital controls. And even though this was often a project that was that was failing, nevertheless, there was a kind of a norm that nations should have as part of their kind of repertoire of tools and of sovereignty, the right to kind of control the flow of money in and out of their countries. So that's something that presents for the neoliberals um, as a major problem immediately after the Second World War and one that one can see as kind of being solved by the move to a more um, flexible exchange rate system by the 1970s and then the the general discrediting of the idea of capital controls. So they propose this division between a global order that protects the economy from the interference of nation-state governments. And then the other part of that division is what you describe or they describe as culture, uh, which would still be in the purview of the nation-state. What What is it precisely that the neoliberals wanted to leave to the nation state? Because it doesn't seem like very much. And and why did they want the nation state to maintain its ornamental sovereignty? Well, I think there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, on the one hand, democracy as a principle is praised by people like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises for the reason that it provides the best instrument of peaceful transition of power that humans have collectively yet invented. So on on average, democracy does work to preserve a certain level of stability from, from year to year and decade to decade. On the other hand, it always had the threat of tipping over into um, legitimizing infringements on the right of capital and free trade to exist that for them, you know, made it something that needed to be contained. So put within constitutional constraints, not necessarily unlike the way that liberals have talked about um, the constraint of democracy from the beginning of the founding of the U.S. uh, nation onward. So they aren't really that strange in that regard. They're thought that there needs to be constitutional limits on majoritarian rule. So democracy is functional in that sense. What it can be even more helpful for, sort of productively useful for, is um, the idea of competition between different policy regimes. So the idea being, it's actually good to have a checkerboard of different sovereignties because then you can try things out, right? One, One state or one nation state can experiment with raising taxes. The other one can experiment with lowering taxes. And let's see how capital decides um, to allocate itself within this this competitive field, right? So there's a way in which many competing democratic nation states can actually provide for a kind of field of experimentation for policy that um, that neoliberals actually saw and see as quite useful. So 
the notion of dissolving the entire world into a a single polity or a single state is really not one that is entertained by the people that I look at in my book. They see there to be actually a kind of a virtue to political fragmentation matched by a kind of institutional of global um, holism or 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 um, a, a single global economic institutional interdependence, because that can allow for then this kind of interplay between um, factors of production sort of following their following their attraction to the best um, sites of their application. And as long as that kind of balance is not overly disrupted, then this is actually kind of the best possible working arrangement. And the sovereignty isn't necessarily purely ornamental because in the minds of people like Hayek and Buchanan, anyway, sovereignty is being granted to states through democratic processes and through government to governments. And then those governments choose to grant their sovereignty upwards to things like binding agreements like the World Trade Organization. So in their minds, sovereignty, in fact, isn't being infringed upon. Sovereignty is being exercised, but nation states are choosing to exercise their sovereignty in such a way to reinforce a global economic interdependence. So they don't see that paradox that a lot of critics of neoliberalism do see. It seems like a, a similar paradox that a critic might see, but that they might not, is from, I guess, like a pure libertarian perspective, they seem to have different perspectives on the mobility of labor and and capital. They want capital to always have the human right to, to move, but there's a variety of different takes on the mobility of labor that d- different neoliberals of the Geneva School take. Um, Mises, I think, argued for the freedom of movement, but um, Haberler insisted that it not only wasn't necessary for free trade, but that it wouldn't even be desirable if it were possible, and he doesn't believe it would be possible. And Hayek ultimately defends Margaret Thatcher's immigration restrictions. I- explain a bit about the the Geneva School's approach to, to labor mobility and what it revealed about their ideological framework more generally. Right. Well, this is kind of a, a shadow subplot in the book that I wrote. And I, in retrospect, I wish that I had sort of drawn it out more, but it's something that I realized after writing the book that's sort of happening without me, you know, drawing the attention of the reader to it. But what's happening is things change over the course of the 20th century. And at the beginning of the 20th century, the frame of reference for people like Hayek and Mises and Haberler is really the Habsburg Empire and then the the Danubian Basin or the sort of area of Eastern Europe that is comprised of the different nation states that succeed the Habsburg Empire. And when they're looking at that space, they're actually pretty doctrinaire in their support of the freedom of labor to move from one side to another. For Mises especially, I mean, in his early work, he is quite orthodox about the the absolute necessity of the freedom of labor. That labor, like all other factors of production, needs to be able to go where it's most needed. And in his mind, this is a salutary process that will probably lead to the kind of dissolution of some nations, but then it might lead to their their um, recombination in different forms once they've emigrated. And there's there's no essential problem with this. He saw nationalities and ethnicities as unmoored from this or that territory, right? They should be able to form themselves in emigration as much as they can in the places that they are ancestrally rooted to. So this is still a kind of a 19th century vision of 
the great migrations that moved people from Central and Eastern Europe to North America, and also the huge migrations that were moving internally from the countryside to the city that really drove the Industrial Revolution. So it's quite a it's quite absolute uh, in its in its belief in in labor mobility as a principle. This early Austrian position. What changes is really world wars. So the Second World War produces a situation in which human mobility is now perceived as a quite acute national security threat, particularly when you think about the way in which the entire Japanese population in the United States was brought under suspicion as a kind of a fifth column for the emperor. The German population, too, was, you know, to a lesser extent, but also stigmatized and brought under suspicion, even if they'd been there for generations. And what people like Mises said, looking at this situation, was effectively, this is a problem, but it's a temporary problem. But for the time being, let's try to conceive of a system of global capitalism that doesn't rely anymore on free labor mobility. So they say, given these constraints, what might we see as a kind of a provisional working model of something that could still work? And in that kind of let's bracket this for the moment state of mind, someone like Haberler comes up with the theory of comparative costs, which makes in sort of formal international trade economics terms, the argument that if you have enough movement of goods and capital, then you can profit just as much from free trade and free capital uh, policies as if you had free movement of labor. So he, he makes a kind of he produces a kind of uh, epistemological now foundation or alibi for a closed borders for people position. Not, I think, because he has any kind of inherent antipathy towards foreigners or people of different races, but because the circumstances of the borders that came up in the course of the Second World War are sort of being taken seriously. Yet it's telling, perhaps, that while neoliberals are able to cultivate such a utopian disposition towards markets, mm -hmm. they sort of are willing to be realists when it comes to the, the boundaries of the nation states for ordinary people. Oh, absolutely. No, I think that's, that's unquestionable. And the, the way that this develops only kind of drives that point home all the more clearly, because what we get in the course of the 20th century, of course, is not just the occurrence of two major world wars, but also migration from the global south to the global north in significant quantities, you know, that we haven't seen since, well, um, the, of course, the mass forced migration of slavery that effectively founded the United States and the, um, the movement of Asian laborers into Western United States and Canada and Australia in the late 19th century, which was shut down by exclusion acts. But what you get into the post-war period, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you start to get the movement from French colonies and then the former French colonies into the French metropole. You get guest workers arriving in large numbers from places like Turkey and Morocco into countries like West Germany and the Netherlands. And you get people from the British Commonwealth and the former British Empire migrating into the United Kingdom. So the creation of a multicultural and a multiracial Europe, multiracial Britain, a multiracial France, a multiracial Germany brings home this uh, quote unquote problem of a clash between different cultural styles in a way that neoliberals now 
are forced to confront. And the way that they confront it is exactly as you say, not exactly inspiring in the evenness with which they apply their absolute principles to people as they do to goods and capital. What Hayek concludes in the late 1970s, looking at Margaret's Margaret Thatcher's policy, which was to effectively end immigration from countries of the global south if she had her way. This was her official position at that time. Hayek supports it. He doesn't come out in principled opposition to that and say even, you know, that people should deserve the same rights of movement that capital does. That would at least be a kind of um, honorable libertarian position, you could say. But he says, no, people are a special kind of, you know, factor of production in effect. And they can be very disruptive. And as he says, the kind of origins of racialism come from the inability of longstanding residences to kind of, residents of countries to kind of extend their welcome to newcomers. So he creates an analogy to um, Vienna on the arrival of large numbers of Jews from the from further east and Eastern Europe and and this, and Russia. And he says, well, when the Jews arrived. You know, they were unable to assimilate quickly, and they ended up being a, um, a disruptive force, and it actually ended up producing anti-Semitism. Their presence produced anti-Semitism. He is by no means endorsing Enoch Powell's River of Blood speech, but he's sort of naturalizing the perspective underlying it. It's hard to say. I mean, he is on the record being directly critical of Enoch Powell. Um, there's an excellent new biography that I recommend to anyone who's interested by a historian named Camilla Schofield. And she documents there, and I've even seen the originals in the archives about uh, Powell really bristling at the way that Hayek comes out and calls him. He uses some some term like at the deranged fever dreams of Enoch Powell or something. He he's It's not a sort of soft uh, insult or slag on Powell that Hayek delivers. So it's I really hesitate at sort of lumping them together because I think there is a substantive difference between them. In fact, this is something I'm sure we'll talk about, but it leads to the kind of the substance of my my current research. But there is something different between the Hayek position, which is basically people have a hard time getting along in the short term, but in the long term, they they will adapt to one another's presence. But we need to be mindful of the short term problem and then probably in, put you know strict limits on migration for now. That's one position versus the Powell position, which is effectively, you know, there is something essentially different about these two racial or cultural groups, and they kind of deserve to be separate sort of now and forever. And that latter position, the strong culturalist or racist position, is one that has its own genealogy, and, and it happens to not be the one, emphatically not the one that Mises and Hayek inhabit. And before we move on, we, sh- we should just, for listeners who aren't aware, Enoch Powell is a conservative member of parliament who I think in 1968 or so gives this river of blood speech, which is just this hyperbolically extreme warning about the Britain being flooded with non-whites. Right. And he's become the kind of icon of a kind of little Britain white resistance to the changing demographics of their country and really of the world in general. And that's a certain kind of reactionary conservative position that is consistent with some of the people I'm writing about in the sense that Powell also happened to be a strong adherer in the gold standard, and he believed that gold must flow, even though people must not. But nonetheless, what I see with the, with the Austrian development in, 
in the case of my characters here, Hayek and Mises, is what starts as a kind of absolute position of free mobility turns into a kind of a provisional bracketing of it saying we make an exception because it's wartime. Mises says, you know, we can't expect the U.S. to let in hordes of Japanese or Germans now in the middle of the war. And he says in this sort of this sort of eminently quotable line, um, quotable now by right wing uh, libertarians. There is no man who would not shudder at the image of of masses of colored people um, living amongst him, something to that effect. So there is a kind of acknowledgement that humans are imperfect and xenophobia exists but it's not made a core part of their system. What you get the hint of with Hayek in the Thatcher moment and a bit more in his 1980s writing on morality is this idea that that indeed there might be a kind of patrimony of certain cultural virtues that adhere to, adhere to certain cultural groups, not to others. And then that becomes the dangerous way to argue for a strong separatist or segregationist version of free market liberalism. Which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. You argue that contrary to the standard picture of neoliberalism as the unleashing or freeing of the market, or for those who are following uh, Karl Polanyi, how they would phrase it, uh, disembedding the market, that neoliberalism was actually about encasing or protecting markets from democratic control and doing so quite specifically at the global level. Explain the argument you're making. Yeah, I mean, I think that the phrasing that I use, especially in the introduction there, is to push back against a common metaphor that we hear about, especially the period since the 1970s as a kind of unfettering of markets, right? You hear about unfettered trade or unfettered capital movements. And when you study the, the practice and the history of international economic law, it's it's a strange way to describe what has happened since the 1970s, because what you've actually observed since the 1970s is a proliferation of legal instruments, of legal institutions, of the power and jurisdiction of new forms of international economic law to police, oversee, regulate, and um, sometimes enforce legislation, you know, not just at the border, but beyond the border and into the kind of private conduct of states. So a case in point there is the European Court of Justice, which has the right to overturn decisions made within the national level or even to compel nations to do things like, as it's done, stop supporting national businesses or sell off uh, nationally owned industries. And this whole apparatus has gotten more and more complex, actually, since the 1970s. The, one of the signature articles written about the emergence of international economic law, um, written by David Kennedy, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School, sort of makes a joke at the end of it saying what this, what this emergence of international economic law should make lawyers realize is it's time to reach for your resume because you're going to have more jobs. So this is actually a growth field. The, the the oversight and the arbitration, litigation and the settlement of all of these cases is something that is keeping, you know, you know, entire armies of of lawyers busy and bureaucrats busy. So the image that we have via, I think, misleading imagery such as globalization as as a kind of zapping of forces and electric um 
lasers all over the world and in response to the the ever-changing landscape of supply and demand this idea that the world is flat and things just simply move to where they're needed and and the whole thing is is frictionless and that's a problem we need to slow it down i think is is misleading i think that the 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 reality of globalization is an ever denser thicket of legal instruments to push trade and investment and migration in one way and not others and what I was trying to describe in the book is the kind of normative logic at the heart of the people who are thinking through the way that they want the global economy to be regulated. So this pushes us away from the idea of neoliberalism as deregulation, which I think is really misleading, pushes us away from the idea of market fundamentalism on the premise that we actually have anything that could be called a free market or a disembedded market. Rather, what we see is a particular kind of an embedded market, a particular form of regulation. And I found that rather than unfettering that the idea of encasing a particular um, set of arrangements is actually gets descriptively much, much closer to the, uh, the world that we live in. Is it more accurate to say that if it's neoliberalism, at least the Geneva School, it's not about freeing markets, that it is about depoliticizing them? I think it is. I mean, it, it's helpful to think about it that way largely because that's the way that my actors themselves describe the process. So, and you see this in the coverage in, you know, Bloomberg or Financial Times or the Washington Post. Now, when people talk about the problem of the current trade war or the unsettled relationship between China and the United States is it's politicizing trade relations, right? And Sometimes it's implicit, but other times it's explicit that it would be better to depoliticize them. And the implication there is what we had before 2016 was somehow depoliticized trade, which is a difficult argument to make when you actually follow the history of these things. Of course, the production of all of these institutions were eminently political undertakings, and they wrote into them a certain kind of politics and to claim that they are outside of or above or drained of politics is, you know, it's a kind of hucksterism that I think most people aren't really fooled by anymore, actually. I mean, that's in fact... Hucksterism, you know, also known as a, a war of position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, ideology is another way of putting it. But I think, I mean, the, the incredible thing is is to have written this book, you know, before 2016 and now be talking about it after. Because as I say in the book, you know, the real emphasis on on the question of integration as a concept by the people I'm writing about is this idea of negative integration. So removing the barriers between countries so that capital and goods can flow more freely. And there's this implication throughout that that's really a kind of it's only a, a process of dismantlement, and once things can move freely, then we will we can the, the state can effectively wither away, and markets can markets can do most of the action, and states can just step back and do the minimum of, of holding the framework in place. But now, if you look at the negotiations over Brexit or the negotiations over the new NAFTA or what's going to happen with the WTO, Suddenly, it becomes, you know, overwhelmingly obvious that that supposed negative integration, that dismantling of barriers, was a completely positive process in the sense of it required new institutions, new laws, new ways of binding states together and economies together. And these things, for one thing, are actually quite difficult to undo, as you're discovering in the case of 
the UK and the EU, and that also there was a bunch of normative assumptions that went along with those. So this kind of fiction that both naturalized globalization and the world economy as something above politics and the notion of negative integration as simply a process of taking away is now being um, you know, brought out into the light in a, like, an overwhelmingly obvious way, unfortunately, through political forces from the right in a way that you, know, you or I or most people probably listening to this show are revolted by in their, in their totality, but it's, it is something that is happening. As you say, e- even as the Geneva School neoliberals were claiming that their project was one of, of depoliticizing the world economy, they were also very explicit about the st- structures and systems and institutions that needed to be built to create this purportedly but not really depoliticized global economic system. And you make the case that Geneva School neoliberalism is ordo-liberalism translated to the global scale. What is ordo-liberalism? Because I think that might be a new term for many people. And how did it inform the Geneva School? Ordo-liberalism originated in Germany. It was It's called Ordo because it was the name of, Ordo is the name of the journal that they began publishing after the Second World War that remains in print today and is is a kind of an important source of of the the sort of ever shifting academic insights and sort of policy ideas of a particular self-identified set of people mostly organized around uh, now the university in Freiburg. What the Ordos believed was that to prevent the takeover of the state from the left, i.e. socialists or communists, this is the 1930s they're talking, or the continued, um, what they saw as, you know, disruption, politicization of the state from the right, i.e. the national socialists, under whom some of them were actually working, some of them are working from exile, that to to effectively sort of fend off threats from both the left and the right, the state needed to take a strong line at producing a legislative and constitutional framework that would lock in some level of individual liberty and a high level of free market competition. Paradoxically, to make that move, to lock in that legal framework, might require a sort of high-handed act of executive action. So, Like which they conceived of as a Schmidian act? Or that you saw as, it, as, as such? They... In one case, at least, Franz Blum um, uses the language of of Carl Schmitt almost verbatim, with the difference that they were seeking a different outcome. So to say that they were, to say that they were inspired by or reading Schmitt is only to say that they were intellectuals in the Weimar period, because literally <laughs> every legal and political thinker in the Weimar period, between the First and Second World War, was reading Schmitt. Often in the American conversations people see um, any connection being made to Schmidt as an attempt to kind of sully the good name of, of thinker X or Y. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. That's, I mean, the work of people like Udi Greenberg and Daniel Bessner um, help us see how Schmidt was a kind of a Catholic, not in the literal <laughs> sense, but a universal influence on thought in the, in the interwar period. So they thought that they needed to use the Schmidtian model of the decision, right, the sovereign decision to preserve a model that would keep separate the spheres of the economy and the state. Whereas Schmidt famously 
thought that that separation between the economy and the state was exactly the problem that needed to be overcome. So he was very much an anti-liberal. The ordo liberals that I'm talking about said, you know, sometimes the state needs to set, step in and make the hard choice to preserve a free market order that in the end is going to be best for everyone. The easy reference point um, for people who have been watching politics in the last few years is the behavior of the West, the German foreign minister Wolfgang Schäuble in the course of the Eurozone crisis. So when Germany defaulted to a certain adherence to the rules about what could and could not be done in Greece, that, that the debt could not be forgiven in large, in a large quantity, that certain write downs couldn't take place, that austerity needed to happen for the sake of confidence in the market, for the sake of holding to the principle. This is a classically kind of a sovereign act of ordo liberal decision. And this is why the macroeconomic arguments made by someone like Yanis Varoufakis just didn't matter to someone like Schäuble. Right, exactly. So this this anecdote that Varoufakis shares of of going into the the boardroom with the the troika and attempting to convince them with all the traditional academic arguments of how this is actually going to play out and this isn't going to work well for the Greek economy, you know, we can easily project what the outcome's going to be. He's like I have charts, I have data. <laughs> right. It, it fell on deaf ears, you know, it was at that point that he realized that he was not in the seminar room, he was in the space of sovereign decision making. And this is the kind of core of ordo liberalism, but it's essential to see, though, what it is that they are trying to protect, right? They are not simply trying to protect their own power. It's not as simple as that. The order that they're trying to protect is premised on the idea of competition and economic monetized competition. And because it is premised on the idea of competition, it leads them to certain kind of positions you might not expect. For example, the early ordo liberals in the right after 1945 were very big on antitrust and very much against monopolies. And they felt that there needed to be kind of the breakup of, of large industries and more competition among smaller size industries. They were also massive skeptics of intellectual property. Um, they were, they didn't think that patents and copyrights should be sort of, um, you know, shouldn't hold for all time and that knowledge should because it was not a scarce commodity, should be sort of allowed to move freely. So their position then kind of allowed them for some, for some kind of policy directions that maybe we wouldn't immediately associate with the neoliberals. But they were also directly connected with the construction of the post-war West German state. So for those people who have read Foucault on neoliberalism in his book, The Birth of Biopolitics, he spends a lot of time on ordo-liberalism because he sees this immediate post-war West German state as a prime example of a state being built not on a mythology of the nation, but on a mythology of the economy. So because you couldn't appeal to the German nation or the German folk directly, you know, for reasons of your close connection to the United States and your other recent um, opponents during the Second World War, you instead had to appeal to something else. You appealed to the strength of the economy. You, you appealed to the, the comeback of your exports. You appealed to the symbolism of the Deutschmark as a currency. You appealed to the idea that you balance the budgets, the so-called black zero or the Schwarze Null. So there's ways in which ordoliberalism is both a kind of philosophy of the need for strong sovereign authority in moments of crisis, 
a principled belief in the separation of the public and private, the state and the economy, and a kind of way of thinking about order as not primarily a question of mystical notions of the folk or the ethnicity or the nation, but a notion of kind of economic competitiveness and economic strength as where the kind of reason of the state sits. What they didn't pay much attention to is international relations. So partially because I think that order liberalism was born in the crucible of literally the Third Reich. And the question was really, how can you, you know, steer this behemoth away from its worst possible tendencies or sort of, you know, create the groundwork for something that will come after the Second World War? There was a very much a national focus. And I use the term, which is kind of clunky, but I use it anyway in the book, which is ordo globalism, because what I follow is the generations of people who took those insights about the need for a legal framework, um, the need of the ability to override certain moments of democratic decision making. And I saw, okay, how did some people start thinking about interstate relations that way? And they thought about it first in the context of Europe, and then they brought those insights to the level of the world with something like the WTO. So one of the narratives I trace, which kind of came as a surprise to me myself as I was doing my research, was that, oh, we can actually think of the people who were philosophizing about the WTO is actually scaling up Europe, right? The idea is we did actually have kind of a working model there of a supranational legal authority that could have the power to enforce certain norms and laws within nations. What if we could do that at the global level? So in some ways, even though one thinks about always Europe as kind of the social space against the neoliberal juggernaut of the United States, actually the people who are really thinking through the global economic regulation that we associate now with the high period of neoliberal globalism in the 90s were tended to be more sitting in Europe and uh, the traditionally economically conservative places like Germany rather than, you know, Wall Street or the city of London. And remarkably, what's inspiring this vision from the Geneva School neoliberals is their nostalgia for the Habsburg Empire and the collapse of which is is really traumatizing for them and the rise of, of Red Vienna. I, explain what it was about the empire and its collapse that so troubled them. Well, it depends on which person you talk about. I mean, Mises is the oldest of the cohort that I talk about, and he's born in the 1880s, meaning he's a fully fledged adult at the time of the, I mean, he's he actually is sent to the front at some point, and, and he works in the war ministry during the First World War. So the time of the empire's collapse, he has already been to university, he's been to grad school. And what he's gone there to do is to learn how to be a civil servant to help manage the Habsburg Empire. That's what you did when you went. You didn't go to learn economics. It wasn't a discipline by itself at that time in Austria. You went to learn Staatswissenschaften, which is state sciences. You're learning the science of the state. And so you're becoming really more of a lawyer as much as you're becoming an economist because the modern field of economics was only being born then in, in Austria. So I look at it, I find it helpful to look at it from his perspective, also because he was Jewish. He grew up in um, in Galicia, speaking from what I've read from people who knew him, you know, aside from German, also Polish because it was a majority Polish area, also uh, some Ukrainian and French. So he came of age in this in this 
highly multilingual, highly multinational space of the Habsburg Empire, only moving when he was in his early adulthood to or late teenagehood to to Vienna. And there was something that he both loved and felt threatened by about this um, this sort of cacophony of ethnicities and and languages and nations. And the thing that he loved was that it seemed to have somehow solved, as he said, saw it later, the national problem. So somehow people seem to be getting enough autonomy and self-determination, mostly at the level of language education, for their need for some kind of collective self-expression to be um, satisfied. And even as they were getting that, they were getting to feel like they were part of an ethnicity or a nation, they were also part of an economy. So the Habsburg Empire was actually quite protectionist by the beginning of the First World War, but it pr produced a space where one could see a kind of inter like an internal division of labor. And, you know, it did not work perfectly, but it worked. So you had you had ethnic and cultural diversity and kind of economic unity coexisting in one place. What was frightening about it for Mises was the same thing that was frightening about that period for many uh, Jews and Jewish liberals in particular, which was the language of nations, the language of nationality was not really available to them. It was not available to them in the same way it was for other Eastern European um, groups. So there was no kind of traditional area of inhabitation for the Jewish people in, in the Habsburg Empire. They, they saw somewhat um, accurately that that to embrace nationalism in the strong sense of national self-determination, one nation, one language, one territory, would lead to their expulsion or absorption or potentially their murder. Um, so as one um, commenter on this, on this era has said, the uh, um, liberalism was kind of the religion of the losers of ethnopolitics, right? So the so the idea that ethnicity and, and nation were secondary to something larger, whether it was civil freedoms or the idea of the free market, um, that was a position that was, you know, it was kind of, it was imposed on Mises as, what, as much as it was chosen, you could say. The other, the other route that was taken, of course, is, is socialist internationalism. And, you know, far more um, people from the era there that we, that we, know or might remember, ended up veering towards the left and veering towards a downgrading of, of national self-determination as a kind of prime source of identity, rather one's identity as a worker and as a part of a, a labor internationalist movement would be, would, would supersede that. That ran into its own problems, obviously. But I think that the way that the Habsburg Empire, you know, as seen through rose-tinted glasses in retrospect, seem to sort of take seriously the need to somehow compensate people for a sense of uprootedness by recognizing their nationality while still containing them with a single legal framework of exchange and labor mobility seemed like at least a kind of, um, you know, a better option than the other things that, that Mises and Hayek were seeing by the 1920s, namely Soviet communism, hardcore economic nationalism, the expropriation of foreign-owned properties in places like Poland and Czechoslovakia, right? For them, they were seeing a kind of the absolute um, nadir of, of economic possibilities and, and possibilities for social order. So it makes sense to immediately see 
what preceded it as being much better than it might have actually been. And in terms of what followed it, Red Vienna, one question that comes to mind is what role they saw state violence and coercion playing in their vision of a democratic free market. They witnessed the state crushing socialist workers in Vienna. How did how did they envision repression in their national and global orders? I, I should say first that it wasn't often theorized, right? I mean, the 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 active role of the state in moments of repression or indeed for um, assisting expansion is only one has to sort of really read through a lot to get to the parts, for example, where Mises talks about imperialism beyond beyond Europe's borders. And, and when you read that, you see what he says is, you know, it was it was brutal. It was horrible. Um, it was terrible what the occupying powers did in places like Africa and South Asia. But bringing these countries into the world market has actually made it better for the populations of those countries in the long run. And, um, you know, basically empire has been humanized and we've been able to iron out these. So on net, the practice of imperialism sort of nets out better than than its deficits, which is primitive accumulation. Is, it's it's not pretty, but somebody's got to do it. Well, yes, but they would think of it in terms of international division of labor, right? Mm-hmm. Which is it draws in the kind of capacities and the faculties of of those groups, and it draws on their resources. So it's more of a it's it's a Deepak Lal or even a kind of Nile Ferguson position on empire, right? Which is just like what are you complaining about? Yes, it was ugly at first, but now you have infrastructure. Now you have a higher standard of living. Now you have access to the world market, right? I mean, it's it's unfortunately within the range of utterable positions that we have, you know, in respectable scholarship. Um, when it comes to the role of the police or the military vis-a-vis organized labor, which is, of course, a great disruptive force, then you really see a kind of a vacuum of self-reflection in their own writings. Uh, just thinking about it now, having read pretty much everything Hayek ever wrote, I can't think of one time that he talks about the need for the, the, the use of the police for internal repression, for example. So this is where history comes in. Um, in the book, I write about this instance you, you're referencing, 1927, there is a wildcat strike kind of workers uprising in the middle of Vienna. They end up burning down the palace of justice in part. And the state declares emergency and sends out police and kills um, dozens of workers. The way that we understand Mises's reaction to this based on his biographer and his own memoirs was that it was a moment when the potential strength of the socialist movement found its limits, right? That they found out that um, they couldn't overthrow the state personally, and that actually the police would remain loyal to the state rather than joining their fellow workers. And that that kind of, that hammer that had been held over the head of the reconstruction of post-war Vienna and Austria, which was at any point we might have a workers' revolution, had basically you know been removed. So there are ways that one can read the evidence, certainly, that he was implicitly, if not explicitly, sanctioning the violence that was used against those workers. This is something that people who are more um, sympathetic to Mises than I have, have 
pushed back on and said, oh, no, you're stretching the evidence there. But I mean, I welcome anyone to check out those parts of the book, because what it seems clear to me is he found it. He said it was a relief and all the troops had been loyal to the government and that it had cleared the air like a like a, a thunderstorm, the cleared the, the humidity in the air like a thunderstorm. So when one sees these moments of actual actual history and action, when you look at the the way that Hayek gave qualified support to Pinochet in Chile as a potential transition towards a later, more liberal form of governance, then it's impossible to kind of avoid the conclusion that at certain points, sort of the arbitrary, uh, the exercise of power to suppress unruly challenges to the status quo from below, namely from socialists and the working class, um, can be suppressed with violent force. And that remains within the kind of purview of the law and order state that the order liberals and the neoliberals are always envisioning. Knowing what we know about the history of liberalism, it's clearly not neoliberals' comfort with state repression that distinguishes liberals from neoliberalism. What then is it that puts the neo in neoliberalism? I think that's a good point. I mean, to say that that state violence against a disorderly uh, movement from below was was sanctioned is to describe most forms of social and political philosophy that we see in the 20th century. It's not like there's been, you know, many people who have been holding power who have sort of welcomed in the the um, insurgents, except for maybe you know Mao's Cultural Revolution springs to mind, and that didn't last forever, though it lasted a while. Um, so where does the neo and neoliberal come in? I mean, I think it's a good question, and and honestly, the more that I the more that I think about it, the less sort of committed I am to the neo as a hard category. I think that if one thinks about what liberalism is, not in the American sense, but in the continental sense, the tradition that links Smith, Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill to, to in fact, Keynes on the one side and, and Hayek and company on the other, then I think what you see is not so much a kind of ironclad set of principles or a kind of doctrine that remains constant from decade to decade. I think that's not how political thought works. I don't think that's how the history of politics works either. But what you see is a kind of what what does remain the same from decade to de- decade and even from century to century is the question of what measures are necessary to save capital from destroying itself, from ca- to save capitalism from destroying itself. And Hayek and Keynes are quite helpful to put next to one another in that case then, not as opponents really, but as people who are effectively tackling the same problem and coming up with slightly different solutions. The solution that Keynes arrived at, or and more properly Keynesians arrived at, was that you know there needed to be a, a, a more active role of the state as a kind of a producer of demand and uh, countercyclical spending and um, the active employment of of um, people by the state um, as a way to effectively save capitalism from its more radical challenges. The assumption of Hayek and company was that to grant those concessions would be to 
begin a movement down a slippery slope towards, you know, total nationalization of all private property and the introduction of a, a socialist authoritarian state. But they were dealing with the same problem, right? The problem remained, how does one um, secure capitalism under conditions of the democratic principle being universalized, the principle of national self-determination being universalized, and a certain set of expectations about what the state should do for the population being normalized. Um, if there's any single fault that I think neoliberals can be um, can be um, pinned with from generation to generation, if one wants to just say, you know, why has their why has their way of understanding the world tended to continue to come up short? Is they don't give enough attention to that question of the question of legitimacy, how you actually um, get people to buy in kind of emotionally and symbolically with whole hearts or even adequate amounts of their hearts into a system that produces uh, um, inequality, everyday hardship, everyday suffering, the the difficulty of the the international project that I'm looking at is makes this problem especially stark, right? I mean, I think we see right now a real crisis in the very thing I wrote my book about, which is the attempt to create global institutions to protect capitalism from disruptive challenges of democracy. For a while, it was working. They the 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 passage of events was such that people felt symbolically bought into a capitalist economy that was also paying out to them in ways that were, you know, very tangible to them: rising home ownership, um, rising per capita income in some countries and not in places like the United States. Um, there were ways that we became used to seeing the rise and fall of the Dow, for example, as somehow directly connected to our own well-being and our own futures and the, and the, the well-being of our children, watching property prices reflecting the well-being of ourselves and our children. But what we see now, I think we're seeing it at the moment, is that that very cathexis, that very connection that people have to the indicators of the economy can just as easily turn against the institutions of global capitalism as work to support them. So if Clinton and Blair and Schroeder rode, rode the kind of a wave of the upturn in the mid 90s to get people to effectively, you know, sign off on either directly or indirectly these binding trade agreements like NAFTA and the WTO. Then now what we're seeing is the backlash whereby people say, hey, this thing was offered to me as a way to secure my well-being and my children's well-being, and it's not delivering, therefore I'm withdrawing my consent, right? Nobody out there believes in the WTO or NAFTA in the sense that Hobsbawm says people believe in the nation, or Benedict Anderson says people will believe in the nation. In other words, they're willing to die for it. No one is willing to die for the WTO. And that's actually a big problem. <laughs> it's a it's a huge problem. And right. I, I, I want to I ask, who, who, who do people in the Geneva School in their conception, who's in charge of running these supranational bodies that govern the global economy? And and did they believe there was necessarily any sort of demos underlying this under, unelected 
system of global governance that could provide it with legitimacy? Or is your argument that a basic problem, a fundamental core problem for neoliberals is that they don't think a demos is necessary, which thus inevitably almost propels them into legitimacy crises? Exactly. So the latter way you described it is exactly my argument, which is it's not a coincidence that there is no demos underlying something like the WTO. It's it, That is part of the design. The design was, and the design of international economic law in general is to produce decision-making institutions that are insulated from democratic pressures, at least on a day-to-day basis, or even a month-to-month or year-to-year basis. The, the model is that of Ulysses tying himself to the mass as he passed by the sirens, right? He wants to prevent himself from being tempted by his own innate human nature. In this way of understanding international economic law, innate human nature is the demos. It's the democracy that tends to always want more. It tends to want more for itself. It tends to want things in the short term. It doesn't really think about the larger whole or the conditions that make it possible for it to be, you know, well-fed and prosperous and so on. The idea is that there needs to be a self-binding arrangement by which the demos is not, not just not present, but, but, you know, deliberately hived away from the very actions of the institutions themselves. Um, And so they never really struggled in advance with the question of legitimacy before tens of thousands of people arrived in Seattle to shut down their their meeting. In the case of the people I look at directly, I think some of the more thoughtful thinkers who I find the most interesting, um, for example, Ernst Ulrich Petersmann, who is a leading thinker in international economic law, was part of a small team that helped turn, legally speaking, the GATT into the WTO and happened to have also been a student of Hayek's and saw him very much as acting within Hayek's, walking within Hayek's footsteps. I read (laughs) far too many of his articles than I care to remember, but (laughs) he never used the word legitimacy once until the first article after the 1999 protests in Seattle. Wow. And then it becomes a refrain. That's something he returns to over and over. So the... I think this is one thing that actually sometimes gets missed is that the question of sovereignty was dealt with within their own terms. And that was dealt with in the following way. Populations elect nations, uh, representative governments, those representative governments in the name of the people sign certain agreements that bind them at a supranational level. Therefore, sovereignty has been exercised. Sovereignty is present at all levels. There isn't a sovereignty problem. There isn't a democratic problem. It's been a sort of it's a it's been an orderly transference of of sovereignty. And in fact, nations, in the reading of people like Jan Tumlir, who I write about in the book, who is described as the resident philosopher of GATT, um, he said that actually these supranational self-binding agreements actually increase the sovereignty of representative governments, because now when the reckless populations want to want to do something that will actually derail economic growth or throw off the relationship between the state and one of its big trading partners, the sovereign leader can say, listen, it's not me, it's this agreement we made. And they can actually just gesture at that, thereby strengthening their own sovereignty, strengthening their own decision-making power, 
right? Through this rhetorical act of sort of deflecting responsibility upward. So that was something he saw as um, an actively helpful buttress to the sovereignty of nationally elected governments. But the problem of legitimacy, how do you keep people buying into this system in the downturn is something that Keynes was aware of. And I think that the neoliberals simply were not. When you're writing about the the WTO and the huge protests that met their ministerial summit in Seattle in 99, you write, quote, making the rules consistent at a global scale was such a necessarily large undertaking that the public could not help but notice. When they did, they asked why so many decisions were being made in their name with so little of their input. The very attempt to depoliticize international economic relations ended up requiring a highly visible project that could not help but make itself the object of political controversy. It seems as though the people who crafted the WTO were maybe not explicitly, but at least implicitly or subconsciously relying on on this enormous undertaking somehow remaining invisible to people all over the world who would be ruled by it. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of fetish of constitutionalism that I think took over and, and, you know, still exists in certain subgroups of the of the neoliberal intellectual world, which is this notion that if you can just get the constitution right, then somehow order will follow, right? Or the institutions will follow and the people will follow. This is the only reason why there could be so much attention to something like a balanced budget amendment, which was actually first used in Hong Kong, interestingly, by people who were directly inspired by James Buchanan in the 1990s in the preparation of the handover from from the British to the Chinese. But the balanced budget amendment, called in German the Schuldbremse or a debt break, is now a part of several constitutions in, in Eastern and Western Europe. And often in the United States, it's talked about as the kind of end game of neoliberal um, engineering, right? That they, this, is the, this is the game that, that they've been playing. I'm thinking of the work of, of Nancy McLean on James Buchanan, that the long game is to get a constitutional con- convention called in which a BBA or balanced budget amendment could be added to the U.S. Constitution. And indeed, this was a project that was active from the late 1970s onward. But I think the fantasy of that project itself is that it would actually bind the democratic bodies that it um, was designed to bind. I mean, <laughs> that people would well, just be sort of like, oh, sh- shit, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, and that, and that has been the case. I in, guess we can't in, do socialism because uh, there's that law. Or just that, or that we can't do capitalism because of that wall. Like, oh, no, we won't. We'll just keep on thundering forward. I mean, the introdu- introduction of these kind of limits on government debt in the European Union were immediately transgressed or almost immediately transgressed by the supposedly most economically responsible um, actors within the European Union, namely Germany and France. So having this sort of 3% limit on state on the that was supposedly binding and could never be transgressed and would be there for all time. And finally, we will all live within our means. Nonsense. I mean, the and I think this is where actually some of the the further the more radical libertarians are are correct, which is to say, as Antoine de Jesse, a rather hardcore libertarian, says that 
you know, relying on a constitution, he says this in very markedly gendered terms, is like relying on a chastity belt when the key is within reach. Ugh, right? God. Right. Ick. But the idea, I mean, not only does this produce like a highly gendered notion of like the populace as somehow driven by sexuality and emotion and irrationality, I think that's an intentional part of this metaphor. But also it's this notion that effectively, you know, the, you can't bind the democracy at the demos by democratic means, even if they're constitutional. And I think that a lot of what got, what, what happened in the run up to the WTO in the kind of, in a way, the fever dreams of, of people like Petersman was that we were reaching this sort of sublime moment where a constitution will be locked in at a global level. And the word global is just repeated, you know, like prayer wheel like throughout the writings of that period. And that somehow in the same way that, you know, the strong proponents of international human rights believe that we have maybe just collectively reached a new level where humanity can kind of understand itself as accountable, you know, universally in a way that it never could before. And maybe all those old problems of legitimacy and border crossing and so on will just magically be solved. Um, that was that was the real kind of hope. Whereas some of the more skeptical um, neoliberals might have been the more pragmatic ones in, in the end, or at least the more farsighted ones, because they said, um, uh, every time you create a larger supranational institution, you just create something larger to attack. And more threateningly, from their point of view, something that could more easily be co-opted by the left. So the history of Euroscepticism from within the neoliberal movement, about which I've, I've written now with my co-author Dieter Pleva, is um, this sense that the very moment when you think that you're about to achieve the kind of lock-in at the supranational level, i.e., we're going to get the Maastricht Treaty, we're going to get the Euro, the EU is now going to be this kind of engine for free trade and free capital movements and free labor and growth. This is the very moment when you should be most concerned that what you're building is actually about to be taken over by your enemy. This was their thinking. And this goes back to the 1967 Treaty of Rome, which creates the European Economic Community, which these universalist neoliberals saw as a disintegrating force rather than protecting the world market, but other neoliberals were central to to designing it for every every seemingly neoliberal institution as vehement neoliberal detractors. Yeah, and and detractors on the left. I mean, yeah, what you're describing, the 1957 Rome Treaty was... Uh, 57, not 67. Uh, thanks. Some of the neoliberals were saying this thing is a nightmare because it's going to produce a protected space of Europe, especially for agriculture. And others were saying, yes, it's compromised, it's not perfect, but check out this legal instrument it has. And we can have this wonderful thing, which is the European Court of Justice, which for the first time can have jurisdiction within national states. And what if we could just focus on that and scale that up over time? So you had both, I mean, this is kind of my whole hope with the book and my whole like intention with writing it really is to show that all of these institutional arrangements that we have now were deeply contested in their origins. Um, from many points of the political spectrum, and also changed considerably over time. In other words, the most fatalistic and um, wrongheaded way to think about something like the European Union is the way that many people were talking about it circa 2014, 2015, which is like, it's a neoliberal plot, Hayek all but invented it, and there's no way with all of these principles baked in that it can ever be anything except an austerity machine 
um, built for the benefit of the few against the lives of the many, dot, dot, dot. Therefore, let's do something else. Let's break it up. Let's go back to nationalism, which was so great before, or let's figure out another solution. No. I mean, the history is important because it shows us how many pressure points and how many breaking points and how many divided kind of stances there were on all of these institutions all the way through. So to um, abandon institution building because it's somehow, you know, contaminated from its origin is only an evidence that you actually usually don't know its origins. Concretely on this subject, you've said that Wolfgang Streak is a fan, a fan of your book, but you by by no means agree with his arguments. What do you think he's taking from your book and and how do you think he's misreading it, I suppose? I mean, I think what he's reading is is the notion that supranational institutions have been somehow intended by neoliberals all along to constrain the nation and to force certain policy choices consonant with free trade and free capital movements and against kind of expansionary social spending or the building of domestic welfare states. And I think what he's misreading in my book is that, first of all, I'm not recounting a kind of a unidirectional process whereby um, certain aspects of institutions were determined in advance and could somehow never be contested or, um, or that somehow Hayek and Mises and company were all the kind of the sole architects of GATT, the WTO, the EU. And because they said these things, therefore, we know that in essence, these institutions are tainted. I mean, that's not at all what my book says. It's not what I intended to write. It's not what I did write. I mean, effectively, I took a group of people as a way not to um, explain the origins of every single institution according to their, to show their fingerprints on every single institution, but to simply say, here's a consistent logic, actually, that has worked its way through the 20th century that actually reconfigures a lot of the turning points that we think that we have. So the Cold War isn't actually that important. You know, decolonization is important because it challenges certain, um, the sanctity of property, et cetera. And, and I try to show that the 20th century and the neoliberal century was shaped by challenges. So a mobilized global South, a mobilized working class splits within the neoliberal camp, that all of these ended up, you know, producing a highly fissured and uh, fractured world order that we live in um, that is filled with places for, I think, productive intervention. And the imaginary that I see straight constructing right now is very much a nostalgist one that believes that what we need to do is roll the clock back to the 1950s and 60s, the era of the economic miracle in Germany, um, eliminate those migrants and refugees that are putting downward pressure on German wages to allow them to bounce back, um, bring the supply chains home so that Germany can have a productive, domestic, um, more self-sufficient economy again. And in some of the work that he said, you know, restore somewhat more of a, a traditional gender order so that women are no longer also intruding into the employment market to put pressure on wages and sort of disrupt and, and, and introduce flexibilization rather than the typical male breadwinner unionized model of cradle to grave social insurance. So this is a way of thinking about 
the horizon of politics that is very much backward looking and brackets some of the most important um, forces that are at work today. I mean, first of all, it doesn't pay close attention to, I think, the way that climate problems cross borders and are not containable within one country or another. Um, it takes as given that there aren't kind of interests shared between workers in a place like Germany and in a place like Syria or Eritrea or Mexico. There's no proposal of a new form, for example, of productive internationalism or uh, sort of an insurance that what's being described won't fall back into a kind of ethnicized understanding of one being owed a certain standard of living and a certain welfare package because of one's national heritage. I mean, I think that it, it only works to reinforce those and in the model of a kind of attrition holding on to the territory that is left of the welfare state rather than what is necessary, obviously, which is a total rethinking of the terrain on which politics can happen, which takes as granted that economic, human, environmental forces are constantly crossing borders and cannot be simply you know, walled off and kept at bay in service of a kind of um, a nostalgist fantasy of an era that, you know, was filled with flaws when it arrived, but when it was there in the first place. So there's a kind of eerie ordoness, in fact, to the vision that he's proposing that, you know, makes one think about whether or not this is actually a kind of ordo socialism that that he's proposing. Yeah, that what I was just thinking was that the sort of nostalgia, uncomplicated nostalgia for a certain sort of post-war nation state requires its its mythologization, which is ironically sort of similar to how neoliberals conceive of, of the economy. You write that they initially are, their method and ph philosophy is all about um, you know, having charts and data to explain the economy and, and business cycles, but then quite quickly, in in the '30s, they they are transformed and they emerge as as mystics of sort who proclaim that the economy is ineffable because for them it was precisely the notion that the economy could be known that allowed for social democrats and socialists to believe that the economy could also be planned. There's something similar about the approach of these new left nationalists, ironically, and their neoliberal internationalists opponents. Yeah, I mean, I think the similarity is starkest when you think about Foucault's description of post-war West Germany as being founded on the category of the economic because it could not be founded on the category of the folk or the nation. And you see something similar with the work of of Strake and Wagenknecht because they're unwilling for very good reason to invoke openly the category of the folk or the people and the nation. So they're already kind of, they're, they don't fall well into the sort of populist category, but what they invoke instead is the category of the social or the social in, in German. So there is also a way in which like the problem of, of um, politics is sort of displaced into the space, not of the economic, but of the social, which is, you know, effectively the same thing. Um, and in, and in both cases, anyway, for me, there's a kind of, um, an unwillingness to, to come to terms with the, the intricate interdependencies that are not, that cannot be undone or untwined. I mean, I think that there's a kind of Swiss fantasy at work here. It seems to me that's what is being hoped for a way that one can, you know, 
profit from certain connections, but still remain, um, you know, relatively autonomous in policy terms. And and that's sustained, if you look at Switzerland itself, by, you know, relatively um, draconian citizenship policy, um, a high level of migrant labor crossing the border, often with, um, you know, inadequate coverage of the, the labor rights are definitely not matching those of the of the home homeborn citizens. So it's actually a recipe just for new systems of, of inequality and exclusion, which strikes me as not the tradition of the left. <laughs> it, I mean, you know, the best traditions of the left are to sort of think through inclusion and think of new categories and repertoires with which, given the ever-changing terrain of the world and economic forces, you know, political imagination can remain as like supple and open to absorbing new people marked previously as strangers or as others as partners and as objects of solidarity and collaboration. And there's nothing of that to me in what I've been reading from the people leading this movement. It's entirely a kind of rear guard strategy of defending what is left, quote unquote, of the German welfare state. And what's left of the left when you have people who are purportedly on the left who are ignoring the very conclusion of the Communist Manifesto. I mean, it's not internationalism is supposed to be a pretty core, not throwawayable subsidiary feature of leftism historically. Right. And I mean, for me, this is this is a good example of how how a critique of institutions can turn around turn around quite quickly into a kind of defense of of, of the nation as the only space of politics. So for those of us who have been reading, you know, with great interest, the work of Wolfgang Strake for years now, he became one of the most trusted, I think, observers of what was happening in the course of the Eurozone crisis, precisely because he was able to discern a kind of like a deeper logic that both connected Germany's welfare reforms at the end of the 1990s to the kind of European Union that had been created by the early 2000s, to the way that that European Union, largely directed by the German uh, policymakers within it, was treating you know people who were suffering the 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 hardest end of the of the collapse of of the financial system after two thousand eight. What what he was able to do was sort of link those things together and say, look, the European Union is in rotten to its core. It is designed to profit Germany at the expense of southern countries. You know, you keep wages down and the euro currency devalued because you have other countries that are also attached to the euro in the European Union that make German products more competitive. So it 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 scanned as a critique of German nationalism to me and I think most people. And therefore, it seemed like a kind of a natural um, idiom for a criticism of what was happening in the Eurozone crisis. But what we found is that, or what we find is that actually, as things have unfolded in the last three years now, that critique of the role of Germany has turned into a defense of German interests in the sense that Germany needs to be cut free of the deflating um, uh, quality of the euro and its connection to other European countries so that German wages can rise and prosperity can become more equal again, and precarity can be eliminated from the German economy. And now that becomes actually the horizon of politics, is how can we make 
Germany a more economically healthy place again. And the the very focus on the periphery and the critique of one's own country, which I guess is a more traditional mode for um, for uh, leftist political economy, has faded away to a kind of a defense of the the horizon of interest within one's own country. And I think that's been quite disorienting for a lot of people. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How to Read a Protest, The Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman. When millions of people took to the streets for the 2017 women's marches, there was an unmistakable air of uprising, a sense that these marches were launching a powerful new movement to resist a dangerous presidency. But the work that protests do often can't be seen in the moment. It feels empowering to march, and record numbers of Americans have joined anti-Trump demonstrations. But when and why does marching matter? What exactly do protests do? And how do they help movements win? In this original and richly illuminated account, organizer and journalist L.A. Kaufman delves into the history of America's major demonstrations, beginning with the legendary 1963 March on Washington, to reveal the way that protests work and how their character has shifted over time. Using the signs that demonstrators carry as clues to how protests are organized, Kaufman explores the nuanced relationship between the way movements are made and the impact that they have. How to Read a Protest sheds new light on the catalytic power of collective action and the decentralized, bottom-up, women-led model for organizing that has transformed what movements look like and what they can accomplish. How to Read a Protest The Art of Organizing and Resistance by L.A. Kaufman, out now from University of California Press. One thing that I wanted to make sure that we covered in terms of why neoliberals thought and think that the economy is ineffable is how that relates to how they think about how information is relayed under a price system. Explain this line of thinking about the transmission of information, including Hayek's interest in, in, in cybernetics and his belief that price signals function precognitively. Right. So, I mean, I think it's a good it's a good opportunity to kind of differentiate this school of neoliberal thought that I'm describing from other ones. So there are certainly um, strains of neoliberal thought, or let's just say economically liberal thought, that do believe, for example, that we can um, effectively do large-scale, relatively reliable forecasting of financial markets, you know, in the near and even the medium-term future. The people like Alan Greenspan, for example, would quite happily both pledge allegiance to the kind of unknowability of the economy and the Allah Hayek, but then also be a quite, you know, committed practitioner of the economic forecast. There are people like Gary Becker associated with the um, the Chicago School of Economics 
who are quite willing to to do the the intellectual thought exercise and even actual economic academic analysis of pricing out all of the decisions we make in our lives from you know choosing to smoke to having a child um, in the model of cost benefit analysis and believing that that is a, a good way to organize statecraft and to come up with policy is to sort of you know subject it to a cost benefit analysis you know what's going to cost more what's going to cost less so that's that is part of neoliberalism as both a system and as a, a school of thought or an economic philosophy. But the people that I'm studying and writing about in my book are the ones who tend more to the, the position of Hayek and the Austrian school of economics, who tended to be much more skeptical and tend to be much more skeptical of the idea that you can capture useful economic knowledge in large aggregates like GDP or, um, you know, purchasing power parity or the cost of living index, and that these things are, let alone consumer confidence indexes, that these things are somehow, you know, pseudoscience that actually lend themselves to large scale social engineering. And they're actually ultimately tools of Keynesians, um, which will be used to try to produce a kind of a false equality between nations and within nations that is not, should not be the kind of goal of policymakers. So they believed instead, and Hayek had this conversion in the 1930s as people on the left and the, the near left, like the Keynesians, started to adopt national income accounting and the GDP. He starts to say like, no, let's not be seduced by numbers. These don't actually capture the secret of what an economy is. An economy is something so complex and large that it eludes human comprehension. All we can do is, on the one hand, kind of settle on first principles, and on, and on the other hand, try to embed those principles in legal institutions, mostly regulatory institutions, and perhaps also systems of government that will produce a space for that mass sort of cosmos of economic activity to, to do its thing and to kind of, you know, course and rush and send all of its information everywhere. And, and he, was, he was coming to these insights or these these understandings of how the world worked, partially through his um, his rather vast and eclectic base of knowledge. So he began uh, one of the first things he did, sort of as an academic, so to speak, was I think he was just out of his teens and he was working at a at a laboratory in Zurich and working with a um, uh, a neuro a neurologist, helping helping him work on the the reconnection of of nerves within the, the, the nervous system of, of some kind of an organism. I forget what animal it was, but he was the son of a botanist. He believed that we needed to see humans not as kind of entities that existed in some kind of isolation from the rest of the natural world, but, or analogously or otherwise, but that they were one of many, humans were one of many complex organizing systems within the universe. And we could think of the way that humans act with one another, the way that we think about the way that iron filings follow a magnet on a piece of paper, or the way that um, the constellations form in the, in the course of the, you know, the emergence of heavenly bodies and so on. There was a way in which he analogized human action to the world of systems and the world of complex systems writ large. 
which gives you a sense of how how difficult he take he he takes the kind of project of you know building a good state <laughs> because the very the very nature of the the complex systems of the universe is that there is no person out there organizing them there's no person out there designing the rules of gravity or magnetism and you know implementing them so the challenge really of this hayekian form of neoliberalism is how to respect the kind of natural order of the universe as instantiated in the way that humans exchange and barter with one another um, in a way that is um, minimally disruptive of this larger order, which he believed would and has resulted. So one of the things he was inspired by was, was this, was the branch of system theory uh, known as cybernetics in the um, 1950s and 60s. And they were, the cyberneticians were, were quite interested also in the way that humans acted as, um, as a kind of one example of many of self-regulating systems where negative feedback loops could throw off, um, the homeostasis or the stability of the system. And if there was any form of social engineering which was necessary, it would be to try to figure out what negative and positive feedback loops could be built into this system to prevent it from being thrown into um, disequilibrium. So for Hayek, my argument is, and I'm drawing on his own work, is that he saw this as the price system as being the primary kind of self-regulating system and the laws that protected the price system as being the purview of you know, human policy. Um, what that produces though, and this is, I think the important part is a very peculiar vision of what human liberty is. I think that the, one of the unhelpful cliches about what someone like Hayek believes is that, well, he believes in individual liberty and he believes in, in individual freedom. And that's why he doesn't like socialism is because it takes away liberty and it takes away freedom. Well, that is true. That is part of the rhetoric that he uses, but the further you dig and the more that you read about what he's saying, you realize that actually, and he says this explicitly at times, that liberty in effect is not an end in itself. That liberty is, like democracy, a, a functionally useful way to produce a larger kind of systemic stability and, and, a, and a higher level of, of, of uh, productivity and the, and the effectiveness of the system as a whole. So... When he judges capitalism, for example, in his final book, The Fatal Conceit, when he says, you know, how in the end do I know capitalism is better than socialism? Um, he doesn't say, because you get more freedom. He says, it allowed more human lives on the earth. The calculus of costs is a calculus of lives, is what he says. And in the end, the fact that the system of the market economy and capitalism has produced you know, 5 billion living souls on the earth, whenever this was, 1988, um, is evidence that it is, you know, that sort of the proof has been, the proof has been offered by the operation of the system itself. And were we to institute another system, surely billions of people would die as they did looking at the famines in, you know, in Mao's China and Stalin's Russia. Um, therefore, you know, the system tells the truth. And there's, there's a way that the that the human freedom aspect is actually uh, free only insofar as you um, firstly 
choose willingly, willingly the kind of legal instruments that will protect the stability of the system. And secondly, that you, you choose freely to respond to the price signals that you are receiving. So when you are told to act, you know, to take this kind of a occupation rather than this, then you do it. You're told to invest this way or treat your children this way for their own well-being, then you do it. There's a way that prices are intended to guide you. And that experience of being guided by prices is what he calls freedom. When it's more like the the freedom of being in, I guess, like a monastic order and submitting to the the discipline of Benedict's rule. Except there's no there's no, you know, Benedict visible. There's yeah. no there's no ruler visible. I mean, and this is the point. And this is actually the also an important point to bring it back to the question of the WTO is the anonymity of the system was essential for him, and he understood that. And Erhard did too, actually, the first um, economics minister in Germany after the. Second World War, who objected to the European Economic Community at first because he said, we're giving it a face. The way the market works best is when it has no face. When we don't, we don't know why we are being compelled to live in this house rather than that house, buy this car rather than that car. There's no one to blame. There's no one to point to and um, you know, attack or condemn. It's simply somehow, it somehow seems to be a natural fact of the world. So that, I mean, that is for Hayek, uh, the ideal kind of outcome for a social system is one in which we are, we are, you know, coerced by means beyond our apprehension in ways that work well to reproduce the entire system while also giving us a sense of self-actualization and um, free expression. That's the trick. Freedom on the individual level is ornamental the same way that state sovereignty is, is ornamental. On the premise that we accept that ornaments are really great, <laughs> you know what I mean. I mean, I think I think that's important. Like, I think that I think that it's important to not see this as a kind of a cynical instrumentalization. They didn't see it as a bait. They didn't see it as a bait and switch. Not in all cases. I mean, in some cases, there is clearly the sense that yes, we need to set up that way. But when it comes to this question of freedom, I would want to say that that it's not the case that Hayek simply said, "Ha ha, this is a plot. I only care about the system." I'm just duping people into doing the system's work or something. It's not quite, it's not like that. I would say that his ideal of liberalism is it does both, is that humans both feel a genuine, not only your ornamental sense of fulfillment and meaning in their lives and what they're doing has this subsidiary, you know, parallel effect of, you know, expanding the, the overall prosperity or expanding possibilities for specialization, et cetera. I mean, that is, that's the, that's the, that's the real goal there. I mean, within its own terms. Since it's not just that free flows of capital allow for information to be communicated, but also allow for capital flight to coerce and discipline both nation states and individuals into obeying the, the world economic order. Is it, fair to think of, of in the Geneva school framework information and power being being one and the same that's an interesting question what strikes me in reading hayek and mises in particular who i guess in the end most of the book is built around you know them and their and hayek's disciples who were working with european law and and international economic law the question of power is I think the inverse of the question of legitimacy, right? I mean, I think that they, they neither tend to be tend to be theorized very thoroughly. 
um, there is this kind of there is a kind of a, a, a certain flat or horizontal idea of the relationship between individuals in a society, which does not really account for the accumulations of imbalances of either wealth or power over time, right? So the, the very idea of the cybernetic system that I just described implies a kind of interchangeability between all of the the nodes of the network and all of the you know the humans in the society or in the in the world economy. And of course, we know that that's simply not the case, that there there simply isn't uh, a perfect interchangeability between the decision making of one person in one part of the world and the other. Far from it. Right. It's a massively asymmetrically um, allocated uh, field of engagement and people have the ability and the autonomy to make decisions in some cases and, and hardly any decision in others. And that I think that the bracketing of that or the 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 failure to see that as a pressing question is very telling in the case of someone like Hayek. I mean, I think the fact that he doesn't see inequality as a problem that would potentially undermine his whole system suggests that his whole system in a way is designed to prevent the problem of inequality from challenging it. So that's where the kind of the question of locking in certain constitutional safeguards against the challenging to, um, to laws of, to laws of distribution or taxation comes in. And the idea being that a situation can, can somehow result through the proper production of a legal order that will either internally compensate people well enough that they don't, you know, feel aggrieved by the realities of inequality. And that when they are sufficiently aggrieved by the, the, by the grievances of inequality, that there will be things built in to make sure that their grievances won't disrupt the entire system. Do you know what I mean? One of the, the key arguments of your, your book that we should probably address is how Geneva School neoliberals perceived the end of, of European colonialism and, uh, and the demands for, for self-determination in the decolonizing world, how they saw this as a profound crisis, though they reacted in, in different ways. Can you explain what the crisis was as they saw it and how various figures from Hayek to Rupka reacted? Sure. So the subtitle of the book is um, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And the first set of empires that I talk about are indeed the ones that ended after the First World War. So that's why we already spoke about the Habsburg Empire. The Ottoman Empire, as one reviewer pointed out, isn't discussed very much. I think that's a good point. It would have been another interesting way to expand the conversation. But the second set of empires that ends is really in the wake of the Second World War. And there it's really the European overseas empires in Africa, the Caribbean, and Asia that decolonize in the course of the 50s and 60s. And there's a way that the decolonization of the overseas European empires after 1945 is the is the time when this really when the end of empire really becomes um, a kind of a breaking point for for some of the philosophies that I'm that I'm uncovering here. So, the example that you just mentioned of Wilhelm Rupka, who's 
hardly known in the United States or 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 the English speaking world, but is you know something close to a household names in places like Switzerland and and Germany. He's someone who 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 believed that you know there was a kind of there was a capacity to kind of reconstruct a uh, uh, working world economic order even after empire. So he even came out in the 1930s as a kind of opponent of empire. He he was persecuted by the Nazis. He fled and spent the war in um, Turkey and then in Istanbul before moving to Geneva, where he spent the rest of his life. So he's kind of this, in the 1930s, in his early years, he's a very interesting figure. He's kind of proposing what he calls a kind of a third wayism. He proposes some kind of proto-Keynesian things. Um, he's not the typical kind of Hayekian neoliberal, let's put it that way. In the case of West Germany, he says, Yes, you know, he agrees that there can be certain aspects of the social state that are necessary to ground people and to prevent them from being proletarianized, as he calls it. But the the challenge that comes from the third world really upsets something deep in him, let's say. So this really comes to a head around South Africa and Rhodesia. The What he sees is the persecution of apartheid South Africa by the international community, and then the um, you know widespread criticism of Rhodesia for refusing to kind of extend the franchise to its black population and withdrawing from the, the Commonwealth in the mid-1960s. He takes this up as a kind of as a kind of a personal cause that he needs to defend and concludes effectively, you know, this is cutting, this is skipping over a lot, but he effectively concludes that there are certain parts of the world inhabited by certain cultures that have in them kind of an inherent desire to disrupt and overturn the functioning capitalist economic order. And they are not integ integratable into the world economic order. And all we can do is sort of hold what he calls, you know, in the case of Africa, the Zambezi line of kind of white controlled Southern Africa against black controlled um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Not subtle. No, he was not a subtle man. Um, and ever less so, the closer he got to death. I'm not sure what was happening, but it's pretty striking to read his his letters, many of which I've exerted in the in the in the chapter that I wrote about him in the book. Um, so he comes to this kind of this kind of real break with the Geneva School model in the sense that the world is no longer organizable as a single entity. All we can do is kind of you know, wall off certain territories and keep, you know, the barbarians at bay is sort of as the way he would put it. Um, that's not really normal behavior for the people that I'm writing about. Hayek, interestingly, also criticizes the way that South Africa is being treated in an era when racism and racial discrimination are ever less acceptable, right? We're moving into the era of civil rights movement. The Soviet Union and its allies are very active at the international level, pushing against um, you know, institutionalized racial discrimination in Jim Crow in the United States. And Hayek also comes out in defense of South Africa, but not the way Rupka does by saying they have the right to organize their system as they want. And in fact, the black is another sort of human than the white and these sort of egregious um, statements of scientific racism that Rupka was delivering. But Hayek Hayek's says, perspective is that no matter how bad uh, racism might be, interfering in the economy as an attempt to rectify it is is even worse. It, it Actually, in the case of South Africa, it's more like no matter how bad the domestic acts of racism are, the 
international economic order is more important. Ah, gotcha. So the problem is not the problem with sanctions against South Africa, which suggests that the whole rules of the world can somehow be made and remade arbitrarily based on the whims of of different countries and pressure groups. And in fact, no, there does need to be a kind of a grun norm or like a fundamental norm about free capital and free trade. And to sort of impose sanctions on South Africa because you don't like their domestic politics is troubling the whole constitutional settlement of the world economy. So his defense of South Africa wasn't of South African apartheid as such, but it was a, it was a defense of the need to, to sort of maintain the whole regardless of the um, the internal conditions of the parts. In review of, of your book, Adam Getachew, I think, suggests that the evidence you present shouldn't be leading you to be making as fine a distinction between these these different schools of thought, if I'm reading her review right. Because what I took from your book is that for many in the Geneva School, it was okay for formal empire to end precisely and only if the material basis for the same basic geopolitical order remained, which which ironically is is precisely what anti-colonialist described and dubbed neocolonialism. Uh, as mm-hmm. Ghanaian president Kwame Nkrumah put it, neocolonialism was, quote, the worst form of imperialism. For those who practice it, it means power without responsibility. And for those who suffer from it, it means exploitation without redress. What do you make of her contention that you that you let off neoliberals too lightly or draw too fine a distinction when you write that, quote, the mainstream of neoliberals saw a rule, a world of rules, not a world of races. I mean, I think that that's a fair criticism. I think that on the other hand, I'm trying to take quite seriously the distinctions within this group. And on that level, then I think it, it is meaningful as a difference when then one group of actors say that, you know, one person, one vote suffrage is impossible and should never be practiced in places like South Africa and those people who say, no, no, in fact, it should be practiced and practiced immediately. I mean, it's probably overstatement to say that they have somehow ceased to see races, as, as it, I agree it should sound like I said in that fragment. But um, it is true that they are in their concrete policy suggestions saying race as a, as a category of legal policy is not relevant anymore, right? So it, it, it's race is, is doubtlessly still informing their whole worldview and the way that they're understanding, um, you know, potential futures and ways that, that North-South relations can proceed. Of course, I mean, it would be foolish to say that they somehow had abandoned uh, race as a, as a subject position. But I think that in terms of the actual, you know, writings that they're putting to paper, then there is a difference between producing a space within which um, democratic claims can be made and one in which they can't. So if a Hayek says, you know, one man, one vote is possible in South Africa, even though he didn't quite go that far, but if he does, then you know, that that suggests many different outcomes. It, it suggests the possibility that there will be, you know, a business-friendly government that kind of locks in certain constitutional guarantees that, you know, 
we will not have the reproduction of a domestic welfare state for the black population. Or it means that you can get a Nelson Mandela, right, and and who can be elected in and, and produce different sort of transformative reforms. Or it, it means you can get Zuma and what comes after him. So all, all, all it does to concede the, the norm of democracy along the model of one person, one vote is to concede all of the openness that democracy brings with it, right? Whereas I think to, to continue to use race as a category, not only of analysis, but also of policy as people like William Hutt and in uh, a lesser way, even Milton Friedman, as I talk about in the book, do is it's meaningful difference. Well, speaking of that difference being being meaningful, um, what is the historical upshot of, of Rupka and these others stitching together of neoliberalism with uh, U.S. style paleo conservatism? Are are there current political errors to this sort of right formation? There certainly are. <laughs> so I think that the reason why I'm dwelling on the distinction and and, and arguing that it's meaningful is that. To divide the world up into particular racial or cultural groups and then ascribe certain inherent qualities to them creates a different sort of set of political possibilities than, than to say that human nature is ultimately universal and, and differences are not absolute nor are they innate and cultural evolution happens over time or whatever customs can be imported. And the Hayek position is really the latter one, which is to say he does eventually begin to emphasize more and more the importance of a kind of morality or a kind of a cultural inheritance that does kind of adhere to some groups and only changes slowly. But in that sense, he ends up coming close to people like Douglas North or the New Institutional Economics, which says also that, you know, institutions matter, values matter, economic development can't happen through a one-size-fits-all template. So there's a kind of a soft culturalism that I would say is pretty mainstream and probably ultimately pretty well accepted even in um, the humanities and social sciences, uh, most of the way across the spectrum. By contrast, you have scientific racism and the response to the 1960s, the era of the civil rights movement and the women's movement and um, uh, third world liberation movements, black power movements, went in two directions in the neoliberal camp. So one camp went, I would say, in the kind of Hayek-Buchanan direction, which is to say, yes, culture matters, but ultimately we can design constitutions that work for everybody. And the rules will work most places. It's a question of locking in certain um, uh, elite policies, which will prevent excessive disruption of the orderly um, unraveling of the, of the um, project of the market exchange. So that in its own way is a kind of a universalism, for sure. And that that's a response to the the insurgencies of the 60s by saying this these demands for egalitarianism can basically be accommodated. Yes, we are all market actors. Let's bring everyone into the big tent of the market, right? That's sort of one line of neoliberal thought. The other line of neoliberal thought is that which says this demand for egalitarianism runs up against basic biological differences in capacity and ability in different groups. So to say that that black people are equal to white people is wrong because we know that according to these IQ tests, dot, 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 
black people are inferior to white people. To say that women are capable of um, performing as well in, in, in employment as men are is wrong because we know based on dot, dot, dot. And this is a position, the, the scientific racist and biological racist and, and sexist position that is in fact taken by some central members of the of the neoliberal community. And most pointedly um, is Murray Rothbard, who is kind of the, the, the father of, of the hard brand of libertarianism called anarcho-capitalism. But already in, in 1969, he publishes an article called Egalitarianism as a Revolt Against Human Nature. So he's appealing back to human nature and saying, we are not equal, not even if we all have equal access to the market, will, will we all be equal? Because, you know, effectively merit, meritocracy is a myth. We don't, we, we are not blank slates. We are born with certain capacities and, um, and those things cannot be changed. And that sub, that sort of substream of libertarian and neoliberal thought ends up being, um, not that influential in the medium term into the 1970s and 1980s. But in the 1990s, it, start, it, begins, it begins to become very important and it grafts itself onto. So Rothbard starts the paleo libertarian movement and it creates this so called paleo alliance with the paleo conservative movement in the end of the 80s. And they start to agitate most strongly against immigration. And so, the, once again, the kind of south north movement of peoples ends up being the thing against which now the racialist strain of Austrians and libertarians who are clustered around the Ludwig von Mises Institute in Alabama and who often see themselves sort of in outright conflict and war almost with the more Hayekian Austrians around the George Mason University where James Buchanan was teaching. Um, this group of sort of the renegade racialist libertarians finds itself right in the milieu of white nationalists, academic racists like Jared Taylor and Richard Lynn. And they effectively become a central part of this kind of coalition that we, you know, have come used to calling the alt-right. And the biological position that egalitarianism is a myth because humans are different between groups, between racial groups, between sex groups, and between national and cultural groups becomes an important part of what we now see as the kind of the far right backlash against the order that we're just emerging from. So you can see traces of this in, in Hungary, in, in Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland, in the UK. And this is a kind of a position which is built on inegalitarianism. And because it's built on inegalitarianism is uncomfortable with the project of supranational institution building. They basically say, why are we trying to do these large-scale rules-making projects, whether they're the WTO or the EU, because they're different. They can't follow the rules like we can. So we're never going to be able to do this at that level. All we can do is retreat to the nation or retreat to smaller secessionist entities and um, allow a kind of free exchange without the intervention of supranational institutions to organize our, our lives. So this is a way to trace back people even like Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump into the history of neoliberal thought. Yeah, I mean, not in the sense that I see them as neoliberals in the sense that I'm using it. But Rothbard did, and um, John Gans has written about this really well, 
he advised the Pat Buchanan campaign in in the early 1990s. He wrote what he calls a strategy of right-wing populism. And what is being thought through there, even though he ends up then having to effectively break with Buchanan because Buchanan is pushing protectionism, among other things, is what's being thought through is is an inversion of what the traditional model of neoliberal thought had been. Traditionally, from Hayek to Buchanan onwards, what neoliberalism was about is the elites constraining the masses at some level. That's the positive state building project. Of course, it has all kinds of capacities for self-invention and self-creation. I don't want to be too um, conspiratorial about it. But the basic model is how do you design institutions to lock in market-friendly policies and policies that will allow the reproduction of, reproduction of, of capital rights, of free trade, and so on. What Rothbard starts to theorize and other neoliberals pick up on in the 90s is how, what if neoliberal thought was actually about using the masses against the elites? So rather than a top-down constitutional design project, which for the most part, sort of Montpellier society of neoliberalism was up until the 1990s, what if it could sort of use democracy against these entrenched elites who people like Rothbard now see as the real threat? The real socialist threat is no longer the masses. The masses aren't interested in socialism. They've been totally co-opted into the market. The, the only people who still believe in socialism are the elites. The, the limousine liberals. Exactly. And the people who are running the EU, so Brussels. So the Euros, the neoliberal Euroskeptics and the people pushing things like um, referenda and direct democracy alongside market-friendly principles have become confident that if given the chance, the masses won't push back against the kind of encasement of the market, but they'll help to even deepen it. One thing that we haven't been able to talk about much, but that's a really central part of the story you're telling, is how neoliberals mobilize and clarify their project in reaction and opposition to the proposal for a new international economic order. And that that proposal is diametrically opposed to the neoliberal worldview because it says that these facially neutral systems actually, given the, the deeply unequal structure of the global economy, simply reproduces that, the existing unequal order. And so they a big part of your story is is their fight against the NIEO. And my my last question is thinking back to this moment where there was a contest between a left proposition from the global south on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other. What what is the NIEO of today? What is the substantive alternative global order? that the left is proposing. The the anti-globalization movement from the late 90s, early 2000s tried to describe itself at times as an alter-globalization movement, given the slogan, another world is possible. But I think it was really still mostly about saying no to the international financial institutions. So, so today with Trump's tariff war, I wonder... What is the left alternative to the global capitalist order and neoliberalism since it isn't protectionism? I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why it's useful to go back to origin stories, because the origin story of the WTO was the failed ITO or International Trade Organization, which was supposed to be part of the Bretton Woods order alongside the IMF and the World Bank. But it was um, not ratified by the U.S. Congress 
1947 because it included too many of the demands of global south countries. So Latin American countries in particular were able to get into this charter for an international trade organization in 1947 in Havana. Things like the right to nationalize foreign-owned property, commodity stabilization funds, which would you know prevent primary producing countries from being so exposed to massive fluctuations in the world market. And this thing wasn't passed. So it was it was defeated in 47 and it, and it was reborn in 1995 as the WTO with neither of these the two things in it, right? So what we got in the WTO was something that was cleansed of the kind of, at least in its strong form, was cleansed of the kind of concessions that had been built into the world trade system since the 40s for countries that were still developing in the process of industrialization, um, you know, backward, however you want to use the terms you want to use from the time. What the anti-globalization protesters were arguing against then in the 1990s was, you know, the, the version of globalism that we that through many long, painful processes of negotiation and so on had been arrived at by the 90s. It had defeated the new international economic order, NIEO, which was a proposal in the mid-1970s from global South countries led by the oil-producing um, nations from Mexico to the Gulf to um, to have a different set of rules for global South countries to also in, in, introduce commodity stabilization agreements, to introduce more transfers for development, um, more loans. It was I, I hesitate to call it a left program because, I mean, it was still very much an elite-driven program, and there was no attention given to, let's say, internal inequality in the NIEO. It was something that indeed saw the different nations of the world as kind of actors with which, within which if revenues could be stabilized between those actors, then you know justice would be done, but didn't say anything about what would happen inside those nations later. Um, so in that sense, it had the traditional kind of shortcoming of a lot of these um, reformist projects of, of, of alter globalization, if you like. What do we have now? A few years ago, there was a great deal of excitement over the BRICS um, bank and some new sort of coalitions between global South countries, like especially Brazil, India, and China, South Africa. Um, a lot of people are looking at the Chinese Asian Development Bank is something that could kind of displace the traditional international financial institutions. I think we're getting a kind of multipolarity now in institutions where, you know, Germany and China, for example, are developing stronger bonds and the U.S. and U.K. will develop stronger bonds after Brexit, pivoting Anglo-American relations possibly away from a kind of Eurasian bloc. Um but these are hardly kind of inspiring and liberatory political projects, right? I mean, Not we're really <laughs> talking <laughs> we're really talking about kind of the shuffling of national elite um, arrangements for their own enrichment. I mean, nothing nothing that we see happening right now gestures much at any kind of grassroots um, redistribution or our reorganization of of power structures through a kind of you know, fiddling with with uh, trade policy or or trade agreements, I don't see that happening at all. I mean, where I think the the neuralgic point of the of the global economy now is 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 climate. I mean, I think that not in the sense that 
we will all be eventually compelled to realize our own interdependence. I think that it's going to work in the opposite direction, if anything, that it's going to increase competitive uh, forces and increase a kind of a zero-sum attitude between nations. But I think that that is the terrain that as the main parties um, who are leading the large nations, Germany accepted, um, pretend like that's not part of politics or all it is is a question of who can grow fastest rather than a question of the conditions on which growth can actually happen for anyone. I think that those are the kind of places where the urgency is and needs to be more from the left to sort of say, this is the terrain that's effectively being abandoned by these like national elite driven policies of enrichment and agreements based on enrichment. So how can we use this abandoned terrain for the one on which we build our own um, understanding of alter globalization? So I think it's probably in this case, not going to be a kind of um, a re-engineering of WTO or NAFTA to sort of make it better for the left, rather a kind of a new form of globalism that um, that develops a pedigree altogether different from the one that I described in the book. Well, Quinn Slobodian, thank you very much. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Quinn Slobodian teaches history at Wellesley College and is the author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism from Harvard University Press. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week sometimes twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes, please do take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks is a huge help. <laughs>